So my name is Aaron Holbert. If you are new here, I'm the senior pastor, which uh, doesn't mean a whole lot other than uh, I'm, what, I'm part of the elder board. We shepherd this team together. We shepherd the congregation together. Uh, I'm 42. I have four kids, and uh, my kids are in a stage of life right now where they are experimenting with style. I was a youth pastor for 11 years, and for 11 years I always saw like middle school-aged kids, and in particular boys for some reason, playing with their style. And In fact, I remember this one kid who was like, he was a cowboy, but, uh, but like an extreme athletic cowboy, right? So think of a cowboy that was really athletic, and we were going to camp one year, and he showed up that Monday that we were going to go to camp in a bandana and like skinny jeans. And he had a skateboard in his arm, and he goes, Aaron, this week, I'm going to be a skater. All right, man, you're just trying something on, right? You're trying this new thing. You're, you're trying to figure out who you are. Well, my kids are kind of in that, entering that same phase of life. And Jen and I are pretty relaxed when it comes to style. But the major question we always ask is, what are you trying to tell your, the world about this style? What are you communicating? Because when you dress... When you wear certain clothing, when you have a certain hairstyle, you're communicating to the world something, right? So I don't know if you've noticed, but that kid with a big mohawk right now, that's one of my kids. We're like, okay, wear that big mohawk. But uh, what are you trying to communicate with the world when you wear that mohawk? That's a big part of style, right? You're communicating something to the world. You're communicating who you are. During election seasons, candidates will have huge meetings and they'll sit around with all these uh, people that are giving them advice and they'll talk for hours about what kind of tie they should wear. Because that tie sends a message. That message might be, I'm a little power hungry. That tie might say, I'm the one that wants to be in control. That tie might say something like, I want to ease your fears and calm you. But that tie sends a message, and and the politicians know that. And so they hold these huge meetings, not just about what suit they're going to wear, and that's part of it, but even just what kind of tie they will wear. Our clothing and our style sends a message to the world. And so Paul uses that metaphor of style and clothing to talk about our life and the message it sends to the world about who we are in Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we jump back into our series, Better Together. So we took a little, we've been studying through Ephesians and we titled this series, Better Together, as we look through Ephesians. As we, uh, we titled this because throughout Ephesians, Paul uses this metaphor, just a couple different metaphors. One is a building metaphor, another is a body metaphor, but it's all about how we as Christians work out better together. And I was actually thinking about that as Christian was leading us in communion. Uh, I, and that, that made me think about communion in general, and uh, we had some kids help prepare communion. Bob was actually taking the communion elements up here. Someone else set this stand up, and there was a bunch of people working together 
so that we could all have communion together. But one of the things I really appreciated was when Christian got up and spoke. We've had different guys lead us in communion, and I've always appreciated different men leading us in communion, partly because I can get stuck in a rut, and my rut when I lead communion is always the purpose of communion, to remember his death and to proclaim it until he returns again. And that's like that's the rut I get stuck in. And one of the things that Christian said today that just caught my mind and caught my attention and impacted me was when he talked about Christ being the bread of life. And what a great reminder as we take communion together, as we break that bread together, that Christ is the bread of life. So every time we have a different guy up here leading communion, I, I get to be reminded of different truths of the gospel. And that's not just in communion. It's throughout our Christian life. We are better together. When we are separated out from a congregation, we get stuck in ruts. We need people in a congregation to pull us out of those ruts, to pull us back into the truth of the gospel. And so as we study Ephesians together, we want to be reminded that we are better together. So we're up to Ephesians 4. 25 through 32 is what we'll cover today. Therefore, having put away the falsehoods, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one, one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slammer be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." So there's a lot going on here. Let's dig in. It's, he begins this section with therefore. The therefore here means in light of the previous paragraph. The previous paragraph was the paragraph where he introduces this clothing metaphor. In fact, if we back up just a couple verses, starting in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught about him, him here is Christ, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. That putting off is like, literally means taking off some type of garment. So that's where he introduces the clothing metaphor. Take off this old garment, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new clothing. Put on the new self. So that's where, that's where he gets this clothing metaphor. So the therefore is in light of this metaphor. In light of this idea that we can take off the old clothing and put on the new clothing. Now we talked about that five weeks ago. And if you could remember everything that led up to that moment, man, you are really intelligent. Most of us have forgotten it. So let's do a little bit of review, because what he leads up to this old clothing and new clothing, and we need to be reminded of everything that leads up to this old clothing and new clothing, so that when we get to the description of the old clothing and the new clothing, we'll have a better understanding. So I'll remind you of the first three chapters, of the truths found in the first three chapters. 
So he begins in chapter 1 of telling us who we are in Christ. If you have accepted and Christ is your Savior, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, then he's, this is addressing you. This is who you are. This is your true identity. You may think you're a skater. You may think that you're a cowboy. You may think you're an athlete. But all of that stuff can change. This identity that you have in Christ will never change. So he says that we are, when we trust Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Think about that for a second. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Not just some, not most, but every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to call you chosen. God chose you. You are holy, meaning you have been set apart. You are blameless. You've been adopted. You are co-heirs with Christ. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You are called God's own possession and you have been sealed with the Spirit who is the guarantee that God will one day have full possession of you. How amazing is all of that? And because of all of this, Paul prays at the end of chapter 1, Paul prays that we would grow in the grace that God has bestowed upon us. So what this means is that we would recognize who we are and we would begin to mature in that position. We would begin to grow and become more of that position that God created in us. So, that's very basic and it's something we need to understand. Is before you put your faith and trust in Christ, you were positionally dead. And he's going to talk about that more in chapter 2. We'll get to that. But positionally you were dead. Positionally you were cut off from Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, He changes you positionally. And positionally, He makes you alive together with Christ. So your position has changed. And His point is, is that you need to begin to grow in that position. Not that you earn that position. Not that you can work for that position. Not that you can make yourself more righteous or more justified or more blameless but that we would begin to act out the righteousness God has granted us. We would begin to act in that position. So every single human has at one point thought that he could earn righteousness. Every single one of us in this room at one point in our life thought we could earn our righteousness, thought we could become more justified by what we do. And so I would say in a way, every single person is a recovering legalist. A legalist is someone who thinks they can earn righteousness. Every single one of us is a recovering legalist. And every now and then, we slip back into legalism, thinking that there is something that we can do to make us more righteous. Thinking that somehow we can become more Christian or more righteous than someone else for some reason. Maybe this reason for you is theology. You really know your stuff. You have your theology down. Man, you're just really good. You've been studying. You might have even been to seminary. And you know your theology. Maybe you never went to seminary, but you know your, sem your theology better than a seminary student. And so you're really righteous, right? As if theology is what makes you righteous. Maybe for you it's behavior. You say something like, Oh, I would never sin like that. 
You know someone that uses foul language, but you use really clean language. And so you think, for some reason, because you have clean language, and it's better than someone else's language, you're more righteous. Or maybe it's some other behavior. And you, you just look at someone else and you say, I would never struggle with that kind of sin. That's gross. Not even realizing how gross your own sin is to God. But maybe for you, it's that you extend more grace. So of course you're more righteous than the other person. I mean, I would never judge someone else for the way that they speak. I would never judge someone else because they're in some kind of gross sin. So I'm way more righteous than that legalist over there. Not realizing that that whole thought process is legalism. So whatever it is, whatever type of legalism you end up falling into, it is false. You cannot earn your righteousness. God has made you righteous and has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. You can mature in that blessing, but you cannot earn it. You cannot become more or less righteous. God has made you righteous. And so from that prayer, he moves into a reminder of who we are. But something else we need to recognize about this prayer is in this prayer, we learn how to recover from legalism. And how we recover from legalism is that it reminds us, he reminds us of the power of God. It is he who makes us righteous. And we need to be reminded of that over and over again. It is he who makes us righteous. When we forget that, we slip into legalism. The way we fight Legalism is by reminding ourselves of the power of God. So from that prayer, he moves into a reminder of who we were. Starting in chapter 2, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses means to have a false step or a failure. And to sin means to miss the mark. In fact, in ancient Rome, when they, when they would have uh, like archery competitions, when someone would miss the mark, they'd say, hamartia. That's the word that we translate as sin. That's sin. So we could picture someone missing the the target and they would say sin to miss the mark. So both trespass and sins covers any and all behavior that goes against God. Every single one of us has been dead in our rebellion, in our trespasses and sin. Even when you do good things, you're still dead because you could not overcome your rebellion against God. You cannot make yourself alive. So every single one of us at some point in your life has shaken your fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do this thing my way. That's rebellious. And it is because of that that we are cut off from God. God says, okay, your way, your way leads to death. And he gives you what you want. And you are separated from God. That is the life every single one of us was in before we came to know Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and no matter how many good things we tried to do, we could never overcome being dead in our trespasses and sins. We could never make ourselves alive again. And he states that that left us with no hope. But the good news is God didn't stop there. By his grace, we have been made alive together with him. The second you put your faith in Christ's work on the cross, he makes this happen. 
He has given you a new life and a new identity. And then through verses or chapters three through or two through the rest of three, he's going to explain this new life and this new identity. It builds up what's called the body of Christ, that is the church. This congregation that we're in together right now. The church is not a building. The church is the people. And he has made us all equal in him. There are no better Christians or lesser Christians. There are no people that have like greater access to God and you need to go to them to appeal to God. The pastor does not have a special line to God. But we are all equal in Christ. Man naturally divides. Man is naturally divisive. We tear each other apart. We are mean and we are nasty to each other. And our habit is to create category or caste systems to show how we are better than others. And division, divisiveness, caste systems are just another form of legalism. And sometimes we get caught up in this in the church. And we try to prove how we are better than those other ones. And we form caste systems within the church. Chapters 2 and 3 absolutely refute this idea. But God has made us all equal. And He has united us all together in Him. So the only way that man can live in unity is through Christ. Being equal in Christ. And it is for this reason that Paul finishes chapter 3 with a prayer. Uh, This is a prayer about maturing in this position once again. But but Paul gives us steps towards maturing in this position this time. And the, the steps go like this. We start by submitting our lives to the Word. And as we submit our lives to the Word, God strengthens us. As He strengthens us, then we would begin to let Christ dwell in us. The word dwell here means move in. And it means actual ownership. When we got to this part, we... We talked quite a bit about the difference between renting and owning. If you have ever rented a house, there's not a lot you can do to that house without talking to the owner first. You can't knock down walls. You're not going to do a full-on remodel. But when you own a house, you can do whatever you want. You want to paint those walls bright pink? Go for it. It's your house. You want to totally remodel? You want to start gutting things? Go for it. It's your house. And that's the point Paul is making here. Too often, Christians want to rent out their heart. They want to rent out their life to Christ. And so they really want to continue to call the shots. But they're like, Jesus, come, make me feel better. But don't call the shots. You're not allowed to have control. And Paul's point here is that Christ would have control of our life. That we would allow him to move in, start ripping things out, start gutting it, put up whatever paint color he wants, that he would have total control. That's the point that Paul is making. And once we allow him to have total control, then we become rooted and grounded in love. We cannot become rooted and grounded in love if we don't first let him have total control and we won't let him first have total control unless we begin to submit to his word, scripture. 
And then once we are rooted and grounded in love, we begin to understand the surpassing love of Christ, and that leads to us becoming fully mature, becoming more of who God has created us to be. You want to have a true identity, first submit to the Word. Then let Christ move in. Become rooted and grounded in love. Understand His unsurpassing love for you, and He will make you fully who He created you to be. And this leads us to chapter 4. Chapter 4 gives us the first therefore. So He's laid out all of this theology for us. This rich, deep theology of who you are because of Christ. Nothing that you've done, only because of Christ. And then chapter 4 gives us I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So he's going to begin to outline the practical application. He's given us all of this theology. Now he's going to give us practical application. So often we just want to skip to the practical application. Just tell me what to do, Aaron. I'm sick of of being a slave to sin. I don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. Give me the things that I need to do. And the problem is, this practical application actually flows from the theology. You cannot live this practical application just from sheer willpower. If you just try harder, that's not the way this works. You have to let God's Word transform you. And as you let God's Word transform you by looking at the first three chapters then the practical application actually just naturally develops. It's not, you don't even have to work harder at it. It becomes more and more part of who you are. So we live out our new lives in Christ by being unified with each other. So how do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So throughout the rest of this, he's going to be describing how we can maintain unity. Now it's important, and we talked quite a bit about this, that unity is not conformity. Conformity is when we are unified by outside pressures. It is outside pressures making us conform to some standard. That's not unity. Nor is it uniformity. Uniformity is this idea that everyone is the same. That we all look the same, act the same, dress the same, have the same skill sets. Unity is neither conformity nor uniformity. It is a oneness with a purpose. It's like a team of all shapes and sizes and talents playing together for one purpose, for one goal. So you can picture a football team working together. You've got wide receivers. Most wide receivers are kind of tall and skinny. They can run fast. Then you've got some running backs. Running backs are kind of, typically they're a little bit shorter. They run really fast, but they've got excellent balance. So when they get hit, they don't fall over. And then you've got a quarterback who's got a killer arm. And then in front of all of that, you've got an offensive line, right? And we're not even getting into the defense. 
But what would happen if everybody or if a coach decided, you know what, I'm sick of having unity with all these people of different shapes and sizes working towards a goal of scoring a touchdown. What we're going to have is uniformity. And we're just going to have a bunch of quarterbacks. That team would be horrible. They would lose every single game. So for the church, it's recognizing our differences and encouraging others in our one purpose. So the church, this church's purpose, and most churches' purpose is very similar. If, if there is a church with a purpose statement that's really creative, I, I don't know, I might question that church. Most churches' purpose statements are about the same. Our church's purpose statement is that all would come to know Christ and grow in Christ. That's it. It's very basic. Most churches' purpose statement is very similar to that. That people would come to know Christ and people would come to grow in Christ. So for our church, it's recognizing all the differences. There are so many different talented people here. Talented in different ways. And that we would come together to fulfill the purpose. Encouraging one another to fulfill the purpose that all would come to know Christ and grow in Christ. So the majority of chapter 4 is describing how we can live in this unity that God has created for us. One of the major ways is to stop living the old life and start living the new. So during this section, that's when he introduces the clothing metaphor, which we've already read about. And so when we get to verse 25, therefore, it's in light of all of that that we just covered. It's a lot. It's a lot. But it's really important. Therefore, in light of all of these truths that God has laid out, that He has unified us together, that we need to put off the old self because God has made you new and put on the new clothing, then He begins to describe all the, the very specific ways to do this. And He starts off with having put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are ne- members of one another. So having put away falsehood, this idea of falsehoods, uh, this is the first part of the clothing metaphor. Falsehood is part of that old self. Take off that old self, that old clothing. Falsehood is a statement that deviates or perverts the truth. The idea is not only straight up falsehoods, you know, just straight up lies, but it also encompasses half-truths or bending the facts or even the statistics in your own favor. You know there's that old saying, stats don't lie, but liars use stats. That would be a falsehood. Taking some stats just to prove your point, even though you know that you're twisting those stats. Our culture is often called postmodern. One of the defining characteristics of a postmodern culture is that each person has a truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. So there isn't just one truth, but many different truths, and you can pick your truth. This is not actually a new idea. When Jesus tells Pilate, I am the truth, Pilate scoffs. And he says, what is truth? So in a, there has been an attack. Our culture isn't unique. This postmodern idea isn't unique. There's been an attack on truth since Adam and Eve first sinned. And the truth, and the idea of truth, and the twisting of the truth 
becomes a weapon that we use to get our way. But the biblical worldview is that God is the author of truth. And there is one reality. Truth is that which matches reality. There can only be one truth. There can't be your truth and my truth. There can only be one truth. Now, we can have different perspectives on that reality. I can have different perspectives on what I think the truth is, but that's not actually what the truth is. Our goal should be to find what is reality, what is truth. And because God is the author of reality, and he is the expert on truth. And so God is the author of truth, we should care about truth as well. And since we should care about truth, we should also let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So we take off the old clothing of falsehoods and we put on the new clothing of truth. Not bending or twisting facts, not bending or twisting statistics to fit our narrative, but searching constantly for truth and letting truth actually adjust us. So we would adjust to the truth instead of trying to make the truth adjust to us. So instead of speaking falsehoods out of selfishness, falsehoods that give us what we want, we are to speak the truth, the truth that matches what reality is. So who do we speak the truth to? Well, to our neighbors. And the way that he states this makes it clear that, it, that the emphasis, although we should be talking about everyone, the emphasis here is the church. Let the let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, people who do not belong to the church are not members of one another. But if you belong to the church, you are considered a member of one another. We are co-heirs. We are equal. There is none who is better than the other. I think that's important for us to think about, too, when we think about other churches. Now, we disagree with other churches in theology. There's a lot of different churches with a lot of different theology. But if they have put their faith and trust in Christ, even if we think that their theology is a little bit off, that doesn't make us more righteous. That doesn't mean that we are somehow better than. They are still co-heirs with us in Christ. And we are to speak the truth with them. So we should speak the truth to everyone, but the emphasis here is on other believers. And the reason why we lie is to get our way. But when we become a part of the church, we recognize that it is not about our way, but about God's way. So we no longer care about getting our way, and that takes away the motive to lie. The motive to lie is always getting your own way. But when you no longer care about getting your own way and you care about what is God's way, that takes away the motive. So then he goes on to the next, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So what's interesting here is that uh, be angry here isn't exactly a command, but it is a permission. He's not telling you to be angry. Sometimes we're told that we should be angry. Paul is not telling us that we should be angry, but he is giving us permission here to be angry. I think that's important for us to recognize, that we can be angry. And part of that is because someone who loves cares. 
And when you're angry, sometimes that reveals that you care. A great example of that is if I was at home with my family and I fell asleep and somebody came in, broke into my house, murdered my entire family. And I got up and I said, well, I'm hungry. I think I'll have a snack. Did I really care about my family? No. You better believe I'm going to be angry. And the fact that I'm angry is directly correlated with my care for my family. We should, in a fallen world, we recognize that there will be things to be angry about. When we see injustices, when we see the world falling apart, we should be angry. There are lots of things to be angry about. But recognize, he, he gives us this permission to be angry, and then he says, and do not sin. So we need to recognize that anger can lead to sin. So even though we can be and should be angry at times in our life, we cannot let that anger lead to sin. I think that the sin that this anger leads to is found in verse 21. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And what happens when we are angry and we begin to let angry control us, when we begin to let anger control us and we begin to let anger define us, then we begin to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice control us. So we start to wear those clothes again. God has take, told us to take those clothes off, but when we let anger control us, when we let anger become our defining characteristic, then really we're just putting on those old clothes again. So that's sinning in anger, is when you let the anger control you. So you can be angry and not let it control you. You can be angry and not let sin become our defining characteristic. In fact, our defining characteristic should be love. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my, di my disciples. If you are really angry about things that are happening in the world. No, that's not it, right? It's if you have love for one another. Our love for one another should be our defining characteristic. Even though we can get angry. Too often, Christians look around and we see the mess of the world and we see some crazy ideas being foisted around us and we see it all falling apart and we become angry and we let that anger become our defining characteristic and then Christians are just known as a bunch of bitter, angry people. And that's sin. That's being angry and letting sin creep in. So we can be angry about all the craziness of the world, but not let that anger define us. Not let that anger control us. And he gives us some, a, a way to do that. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now this is not literal. If you get angry 10 minutes before the sun goes down, you only have 10 minutes to resolve the issue. That's not the way it works. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that it should not be the controlling force in our lives and that we should resolve this anger issue fairly quickly. If you've been angry for weeks on end, you're in sin. But when you see an injustice or when you know something that is wrong has happened and you get angry, 
Begin to resolve the issue. Work on resolving the issue. And I think the key to resolving this issue is to go back to the truths found in the first three chapters. It's hard to be angry. It's difficult to be angry when you're reminding yourself that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. It's difficult to remain angry when you go through all the riches we have in Christ knowing that we are co-heirs and equal in Christ. So that's how we define or that's how we resolve our anger issues. He continues and give no opportunity to the devil. This is such a serious issue that if we let anger become our defining characteristic, if we let anger begin to control us, then we've given an opportunity for the devil. And that opportunity is that you will dress in your old clothes. Don't let the devil have an opportunity. But go back. When you're feeling that anger rise, when you think anger is starting to gain control, go back to those first three chapters and remind yourself of who you are because of what Christ has done. He continues in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So because slavery was very prevalent, and because taxes were so high, and because life was very difficult, there were large groups of people that felt justified in stealing. They would justify it by saying, I deserve this for all the hardship I have suffered. I, have des I deserve this because I'm the victim here. I deserve this because people have robbed me the opportunity. I think we see this today all the time. We see videos of looters and smash-and-grab crimes where coordinated attacks of several people mob a store and grab as much mer merchandise as possible. And these people have justified their actions in several ways. The stores have insurance, so it's okay to steal from them. We deserve this because we're the victims. But how often... Do Christians do the same thing? Have you ever been to a place that just made you mad? They gave you horrible service and you were tempted to just walk out without pain? Have you ever justified your own theft? All of these excuses fly in the face of the riches we have in Christ that we find in the first three chapters. You cannot believe the truths and still justify your theft. So the command is to stop stealing. Put that old clothing off and put on the clothing of honest work. We're, we, we were created to work. I think we will work for eternity. And work actually feels good. It feels good to look back on all that you have accomplished. But we're not working just for the sake of work. We also work that he may have something to share with those in need. So God gives us a way to prevent those excuses, and that is through our own generosity. 
But we can't be generous if we don't believe the truths of the riches that we have in Christ that we found in the first three chapters. When we understand our true riches are in heaven, then we can be very generous with what God has given us on earth. He continues in verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So he starts off with, let no corrupting talk. This word corrupt means putrid, disgusting. This could include slander. It could include gossip. Any talk that goes against the reason God created communication. So first we have to recognize that it is God who created communication. And second, we need to realize the purpose for that communication, and it is for the building of each other, the building up of each other. So before you speak, you need to ask yourself, is this building up the body? Is this building up the other person? Is this speech glorifying to God? Or is it tearing down the body of Christ? If it's tearing down the body of Christ, if it's tearing down other people, it's putrid in God's eyes. It's disgusting talk. So if it's tearing down others, don't speak. As tempting as it is, keep your mouth closed. This is one of the most divisive aspects we see in the church over and over again. We see churches divided because of corrupt, putrid speech. And oftentimes it seems innocent enough. I can't tell you how many times I have heard gossip phrased in the way of prayer request. Gossip phrased in the way of, I'm only saying this because I care for this person. And really what it is, is I have a bit of information that gives me power when I share it. So I'm going to go ahead and share it because it makes me feel good, even if it is tearing someone else down. So corrupt talk is contrasted with good speech, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. So once again, we need to ask, is this type of talk building others up? Is it building the body of Christ? And finally, he goes on to say that it may give grace to those who hear. This phrase, grace to those who hear, means that it is helping others fulfill their assignment in Christ. So then we ask the question, when I speak, am I helping the other person fulfill their assignment God has for them? If not, should you be speaking? He continues in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this, the and here connects the grieving of the Holy Spirit to our communication, to the way we speak. So when you use putrid speech, you actually grieve the Holy Spirit. So often we think that we cannot affect God. That we can just live our lives and God won't even notice. Let alone be grieved 
over our actions. To grieve means to be saddened and to feel sorrow. So when you don't wear the clothing that God has designed for you, when you put that clothing off, that new clothing, and you put on the old clothing, and you use putrid speech, and you steal, and you use false language, and you bend the truth to get your way, you're actually grieving God. Verses 31 and 32 are kind of summary statements. This is not an exhaustive list, but the kind of behaviors that should be changed based on the truths found in chapters 1 through 3. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, verse 31, these are not steps. Sometimes people think that these are steps to anger. These are not steps, but just a summary of what the old clothing looks like. These do not communicate the love of God to the world. What they communicate is that the world is no different from the church. That God hasn't truly changed anyone. And it communicates that the church has no hope, just like the world. So then we find the command, but be kind to one another. To be kind means to be, quick, uh, to be gently pleasant. I like that definition. Gently pleasant. It's the opposite of harsh. Do you use pleasing words or harsh words? Are you quick to point out others' flaws? Do you tear others down to build yourself up? Or do you build others up? Tenderhearted means being moved by others' distress. Do you have a hard heart towards others? When you see others going through difficult times, is it easy for you to just walk away? Or are you moved by them? And then finally, forgiving one another. Do you hold offenses against others? Or do you let those offenses go? People are offending us all the time. Do you hold those offenses? Or do you let those offenses go? Even if they don't ask to be forgiven. So these communicate something else to the world. They communicate that God cares that God changes who we are from the inside out. So we've been made a new creation. Our lives should represent that new creation. The old clothes should come off. The new clothes should come on. These clothes reveal to the world the theological truths of chapters 1 through 3 are not just fairy tales, but it's true change. So what style do you have? What kind of clothing do you wear? And what messages are you sending to the world? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you wrote it in a way that we can comprehend and that you gave it to us and that as we submit our lives to us, you actually change us from the inside out so that we no longer have to be slaves to sin, stuck in, in sin, 
even sin that we hate, but that we can be transformed. That we can be made alive together with you. And that our hearts can be changed. In your name we pray. Amen.